We'll start this then. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Precision Unloaded podcast. This is episode 47. Uh, you're joined by Mark, kind of, if his audio is going to work, and Graham, your standard host. And we have finally managed to convince Simon from Gillis Practical Rifle Events to come on and talk shop, talk about... Um, you know the history of their matches and how they got into it and the current matches etc um so welcome simon g'day um well i'd say it's well we talk to each other every other day but we've talked about doing this for probably about a year and it's just sort of never happened so it's good to finally do it um yeah so welcome to the podcast again you've um it's nothing different from any of the other sort of chats we have offline so um, we'll go over a yeah, few. Yeah, no, thanks very much. Oh, it's, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, Mark is here, but again, his audio is being um, uh, testing, so um, he may be around, he may not. Um, so uh, most of you would have, uh, especially New Zealand listeners, we get a few from overseas, but um, S- Simon is one half of Gillis Practical Rifle Events, probably the more active half nowadays. Um, they host... Uh, a, a huge number of the major North Island matches, that's for sure, and Centrefire in 22, and Hunter-style events and, and several other things over the years. Um, so I might as well just kick it, kick it off. Um, what actually, what got you interested in um, in sort of field shooting or practical-style shooting, Simon? By uh, father probably got me into most of it. He come out of 20 years in the Defence Force when we shifted onto the farm. and uh, In those early years, we were doing a lot of um, 10 metre air rifle and NZDA four-position shooting. They're, they're very formal, very static disciplines, and um, they weren't really reflective of what we were doing, you know, hunting rabbits on the farm and possums and magpies and whatever else moved that wasn't a stock. Um, and it... it we sort of um, wanted to do a bit more shooting practice that reflected our hunting um, with the aim of being better shots while we were hunting. So we um, got into it that way, really. Certainly in the early years. Yeah, and so that led to some sort of early events or um, as you sort of wanted to get away from full position and that kind of thing? Yeah, the really early events were just sort of like Oh, yeah, Malcolm ran them on the farm we had at the time. Um, just rimfire events, 22 rimfire events. And um, very hunter-orientated, very... Um, well, the same small tag targets we're using today. They're sort of, I don't know, 40 mil by 50 mil tall. Um, as in millimetres, not rifle mils. And... Um, yeah, just set up at various positions on the farm and it used to be a bit of a Christmas type shoot um, for the local Deerstalkers branch and you know, mum made a cake for the, the winner got to cut it. Um, can't even remember if the winner got to keep the first piece but yeah, they certainly got to cut the cake. Is, so, yeah, were... is this what brought on the winner has to open the box of chocolates? Is that, are they yeah, linked? pretty much I suppose. <laughs> it was an early influence. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I just popped into yeah. my head. Sorry, so the winner got yep. to cut the cake. I like that. Yep. Yep, that's cool. Yep. But they were, you know, similar, or very small rimfire events, so maybe, you know, five, six stages tops, and only really one 
two targets per stage. Um, you know, nothing like how we do it now. So, you know, almost indefinite time limits on stages, just really small targets. So even back then, you know, because we only had those, the one size tag, you know, you might have to make a, a, a shot on one of those tags at like 90 or 100 metres, um, just with the really basic hunting 22s we had at the time. And, um, yeah, still a lot of fun, but a long way from where we are now. It would have been all um, sort of holdover, or if you're lucky, a BDC back then reticle for those early days? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think I had... I'm trying to remember the, the scope I had on my Morza 22 back then. I had something on, I can't remember. It might have been a a Bushnell 3-9 to nine with just a, a Plex reticle in it. Um, and it was in the later... A few years later, I um, moved over to a mill dot reticle in the in a similar Bushnell three to nine. Yeah, it's certainly uh, changed now. So, so what um, what was the sort of first? So you, you do you're doing these sort of small casual events with the NZDA and, and such, and what was the first sort of uh, semi not major match, but a more heading to what we do today, like a practical field match. Um, be it rim for our centre fire, but a little bit bigger, a little bit more serious. When, when did that come about? So the the real early rim fire stuff, I was still a teenager going to high school, so that was, you know, in the late 90s, Dad was doing that. Um, and then we took a, a break for a whole heap of years. Um, once we shifted off the farm and I got more serious into high school and then university and all that. So um, it was... Oh, we did. I did a couple of really early hunter matches. Um, the first one was probably a rimfire match um, here in Taranaki. Uh, just again, local Deerstalkers branch. So that was a, that would have been late two thousand and nine. And then we did our first centerfire hunter class, very hunter class match, um, in early in two thousand and ten. The first serious match. A bit closer aligned to what we do these days would have been 2011 2012 <coughs> just check this later than that actually 2013 um, I ran what was then the the first Woodstock 1000 long-range match uh, center fire match we called it the Woodstock 1000 because it was run on Woodstock Station mm-hmm. and the longest target was about a thousand meters so Woodstock 1000 it was um, so yeah that was uh, like a, a walking course distances weren't given to competitors you know we had maybe I don't know oh geez, maybe 15 targets at a time at that time center fire targets and um you just walked along a bit of a sidle track on the hill on this farm and then shot across the gully to the, the faces on the other side. Um, did a couple of positional shoots. I think we, we might have had the tank trap at that stage and a couple of like shooting off fence posts and whatnot. Most of it was prone. Simon, so what was um like the, I don't know, the, the, the best rig set up? that turned up to an event like that in 2013 or was it all 
just your deer stalking rifles, hunting rifles? No, nah, there was there was a few. What you'd a little bit more competition orientated rifles back then. So um, the guys who were doing well, um, you know, back in twenty thirteen, one of them had like a Barnard an F-class rifle that he put in a, a more field-orientated chassis-type stock, really early chassis, um, even for F-class. Um, you know, with a, a, a Nightfall scope at the time, then there was um, a couple of Sarko TRG-42s, so the 338 versions, um, the, you know, the original TRG-42s. Um, and then you had your... Um, couple other barnards and then a whole bunch of other things um like there was a ruger number one there yeah um, yeah the single <laughs> shot yeah um it was re-barreled and i can't remember i'd have to look up what caliber it was um yeah i don't know where are we no i don't have it here in front of me um but yeah no there was a ruger number one there and then a um what were they they're like a who does some um, like a BA110? Oh, Savage. BA110. It is Savage. Yep. Yeah, there was yeah, one of those there. And like um, one of the really... Oh, an early ticker. Um, I forget what they called it. One of their target rifle T3s. And then a, a pre... Prior to the T3 model, ticker did a, a ticker sporter. Um, a really early model, one of those in 6.5. Yeah, the uh, range of things. So there was hints of of what was to come with rifles, uh, even back yeah. in twenty thirteen. Yeah, when you start getting into like ten shot mags and or even you know like five shot mags and whatnot, it was yeah, and you know dialable scopes and and all the rest of it. There was yeah, there was certainly some of it then. Yeah. So with those early events, um, as you say, you done the Woodstock one and others. And, how did you advertise events back then? Like now we've got a pretty good um, following and, and people sort of, they look for the events, but how did you get people interested then through through the local NZDA or through the... It's 2013, Graham. They didn't have fax machines. Did they have the internet in 2013? No, they must have had early internet. <laughs> yeah, it was getting pretty good by then. <laughs> but no, like social media wasn't wasn't the behemoth that it is now. No, that's true. No. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't. Um, I can't even sort of. I I can't even remember when I started the GPRE Facebook page. I'd have to like spend ten minutes scrolling back to the early posts or something <laughs> and find out when I started it. I uh, know right in the early days, a lot of it was um, sort of who you knew. So um, I was attending and competing a another event um, back then. I'd met a few guys you know, at that event, and I sort of told them, oh, you know, I'm doing this Woodstock thing, and they were keen to come along, so it was all sort of word of mouth, and maybe the odd other competition where you'd meet some people, and um, guys that Malcolm knew through his gunsmithing business and, and whatnot that, you know, that were keen on the longer distance shooting, it was, yeah, very word of mouth back then. Yeah, I mean, we still get a little bit of word of mouth now, but like I said, most of it's through um, through socials, and well, the only real word of mouth stuff I hear now is about the um, surplus steel events by some of the um, older competitors who don't use Facebook. But um, I guess in numbers back then, like you say, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be doing sort of fifty shooters. You'd be doing what, a dozen or so. Yeah, that's about right. I think the 
uh, for a while there, even um, by the time like you started coming along, Graham, you know, we, we had a bit of a reputation in those early years of running some pretty freaking challenging events. Mm. Um, like the, that first Woodstock match, we might have had 10, maybe 10 competitors, and like three of them decided not to finish the event. Yeah. You know, like they stopped partway through. Wow. Um, just not prepared. You know, just they hadn't done the the random distances doing, you know, like we had a uh, an NRA F-class shooter come up and he had his dope for 500 yards and, and 600 yards and 800, 900 and 1,000 at a completely different, um, you know, location. So different atmospheric conditions and everything. And, and we were asking him to shoot over 1,000 metres and um, at weird, odd distances and funny angles. And he, like he made it through like three, four stages and hadn't hit anything. He was just like, nah, this is, <laughs> not I'm sending me. down range, you know, rounds down range and not hitting anything. So he yeah. was like, nah, I'm, I'm not prepared for this. You also wouldn't have had the um, the ease of ballistic calculators then, I don't imagine, or definitely not in your pocket. Uh, at the time, some of the really early um, ballistic calculators, you know, were coming out. They were on a little Palm Pilot computer thingy that sat you know certainly not on your phone or anything it was just a little palm pilot thing that um i think there was a couple of guys had those really early on but yeah everyone else it was just hard data so would you make that data would you do it on the computer on like jbm ballistics or would you do it old school and build dope uh most of them were using some sort of ballistics program on the computer and um, they'd print it out or write it out and then bring it to a match and then you realise you put in the wrong atmospherics and, you know, or, the, or whatnot. Or you realise that you've done this dope but you've never had a chance to, to validate it in real world. And, yeah, uh, all sorts of problems. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, if you if you have the right information now or know the right people, it's quite easy to build a reasonably accurate ballistic program. but. Even well, certainly out to the middle distances, six, seven hundred, and whatnot. As long as you've got, you know, a reasonable feel on your velocity, um, then you can generally, you know, get yourself a decent BC and measure your scope over bore and the rest of it, and away you go. Do you think that the... you got to? Sorry, no, you go. You you got to remember that. Um, I think we're only up to about the iPhone 4s by by 2013. So a lot of people don't even have smartphones still. No. Yeah. To a no, degree, I didn't. Only uh, <laughs> nobins, you know, yuppies, which you know, I, it's an ancient I, term in itself. When I was in a, a, around this time, when I was doing my apprenticeship, maybe a little bit earlier, but later, sorry, but I'm seeing the first guys with iPhones, like those I've got in my drawer here, those horrible little ones. You, I thought that was the flashiest thing ever, and like, man, why would you have such a flash phone? And that, I think they were like nine hundred dollars, and that just seemed stupid. And now. A phone without a keyboard, it'll never work. (laughs) (laughs) You just had your button, you had to press it four times to get to S. That's right, you had to press buttons a heap, didn't you? Man, the old days. I had a Blackberry for work. Of course you did. I thought that was pretty awesome. (laughs) Blackberry. (laughs) (laughs) Which obviously, yeah, you you ain't going to build an app for that much. So so like Simon was saying, a Palm Pilot, which I remember them, because <clears throat> I used to test them for work, but um, when I was in IT, yeah, so they would have been a usable device for ballistic stuff. Yeah. Did, did you use them when you were a lawyer, Mark? 
Yes, according to some people. Um, I, might say, days. I might add your audio seems to be working <laughs> quite well now. Um, so back to the topic at hand rather than... Sorry, yes. Rather well, than I, was just, I was just dating the, the 2013, what was around, you know, and I mean, I've arrived late to this... You know, twenty nineteen probably. I don't. Th- I don't think. And back then, six five Creedmoor was commercially available. <laughs> That's how old this is. Anyway, enough about dating Mark, because you know Jesus. Um. So, back would mention getting dope and stuff back then. Yeah. I imagine one thing that's made events. Well, obviously, half a hundred things have made them so much more popular. But the ease of building data for shooting long ranges like we mentioned, so simple now, especially for intermediate distances. Um, whereas previously, a decade, 15, 20 years ago, it was a sort of black art, I guess. Um, yeah, and at the time it was, uh, you know, there, was, there wasn't there was so many places around you could go through, you, know, you, could, you could go and validate, you know, actually shoot at random long distances. Um, yeah, and so there was like there was there's a few NRA clubs, but again they're very they're static distances, um, and so people had those dope to the point where you know guys would turn up to an NRA range they wouldn't even bother checking the atmospherics, even at a thousand yards, and just dial their previous dope, and you get your couple of ciders and away they go. Um, so and you... so there wasn't the the same um, emphasis put on accurate, um, dialable dope. Even to the point, you've got to remember back then, a lot of the scopes wouldn't dial reliably. You know, we were in the habit of dialing past what you wanted to dial and then coming back. Yeah. You know, just to, to sort of get the, <laughs> get the clicks to go, to go get to get past where you wanted and then to come back. Because if you didn't do that, there was a bit of spring tension in there and sometimes it wouldn't dial quite quite reliably. So there was, you know, in the... We we talk about it now where you know you you put you put in a, f- a factor on your scope click adjustment value. And, you know it's it's not exactly point one mil. It's actually two percent out. Mm-hmm. And you can put that into your you know into your ballistic app. Well, well back then it wasn't just two percent out. It was two percent at the bottom. It was three percent in the middle. It was five percent at the top of the range. Yeah. It's just you know everything's come a long way. Scope manufacturer. Man, reloading ballistics bullets—you you name it—everything's come a long way in a short amount of time. So, like you say, twenty—you know, ten years—it's um, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> so, I think the first competition—I must have been twenty sixteen—the first one of your events I come along to, uh, Tarata, um, with uh, without an without a clue on. Uh, or much of anything, apart from that I could pull a trigger. And it's not it's very still well. relevant today. <laughs> yes, thank you, Mark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I believe that was... So I, I remember um, trying to get a spot, and it, it was sold out at the time, and I, I got on the waiting list and, and got a spot, which is um, still pretty normal today if you get on the waiting list. Um, was that 48 competitors back then in 2016? No. No? Smaller? No, no about half that. Was it? Yep. Wow. Wow. Yep. I've got the 2016 Torada medium range entry card in front of me in 26. Am I on that? Was that the year I was first there? Yep. Your name's on there. Wow. Yep. It's, um, yeah. Well, that, again, it started this whole thing for me. Um, 26. I remember it being a very wet day. Um, I 
Look, I don't even have any photos of that year. I think it was pretty wet. I remember... I seem to remember I managed to shoot that event. You sure it wasn't 2015? Oh, maybe. Yeah, it might have been 2015. Yeah, I, I remember... What I remember is I remember your... I remember your dad winning Hunter class. And me, me and a couple other guys are going... That's any. That's any year. Yeah, yeah, but this is we're new to this, right? And this, 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 this older guy has just freaking whooped our ass with like a two to three with like a one to seven or a three to nine or something. I can't remember. It was a Savorsky three to nine, (laughs) and he's like shredded us, and and we're all thinking, nah, that's got to be a mistake. You know, (laughs) we're pretty good. (laughs) And then we come to learn that no, no, it was a mistake. He just kicked your ass. Um, yeah, I think I ran a two four three with a. It must have been a. It was like a Tika package deal at a Bushnell three to nine, unsuppressed, um, just pure amateur. Burris three to nine. Yeah, possibly. But yeah, this is the thing though that the idea being, especially with Hunter class, turned. I think I, I borrowed the the rifle off my late father in law because I only had like um three or threes and stuff, and. It got me into it, which is 100% right. Hunter class, it's, well, it was hard for me then, but, you know, it, it, rather than... Cause I remember seeing the guys. I think I think Christian back then might have had a... I think he had a Sarko TRG, like a yep. tan one back then. And I was thinking, uh, fuck, that is cool, you know. He might have been using his ticker sporter. No, sorry, he did have a TRG. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'd never seen anything like that in real life, right? And the, even yep. now, those look fantastic. They have aged perfectly. They're like an f- Italian yep. car. And yep. um, I, I think he'd only just got that. Yes. He's running at yep. 308, maybe, back then. Yes. Yeah, he was. It yep. was before they managed to get the custom barrels for it. Yeah. And, but like, and then some of these guys, and there's still a lot of um, uh, hunting guns. And, and I don't know what you called the class back then. There was Hunter and Open, was it? Open, I think. I yeah. Mean, and, um, yeah, that was before we started getting noises about it's not really open. <laughs> and um, yeah, and and th- but th- for me then to go against them would have just intimidated me beyond belief. But it being in the hunter class, it was much more. Um, well, it was enjoyable. Like I said, I hit bugger all, but I still come out of it um, fizzing. And and I set a goal then, and I still haven't done it, is to win the event. Um. It's been like seven years or something, but anyway. Um, yeah, that's that goal's getting harder though, as well. Yes, yeah, I put a lot of work in for last year, and the fog, the fog wouldn't lift it. Anyhow, um, that's life. But um, yes, yeah, so that was my first one, and then Mark's you would have been twenty eight, twenty nineteen after the terror attacks. I mean, your first, correct? Yeah. Yeah, because I remember you had a pump action AR. And then they banned those like a few months later. So, yeah, out of Troy, I turn up with a lever action. Uh, the list goes on. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you didn't turn up with a lever action the first year. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's next year I think, and then it's the third year I, I struck it lucky. Yeah, <laughs> the current. You're still the current champ. 
That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Beryl Burnham wasn't at Torada. Yeah, it didn't count. That's right. No, 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 no. Different event. <laughs> no, um, your mark reminds me of that. <laughs> my, again, my great goal to win. Uh, anyway. Um, so, I'm hoping for bad weather this year so I can carry on for three years. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not hoping for bad weather. No, no, weather. no. We've sorry, had a I'm, shit I'm, of a run the last year or so. Uh, yeah, you certainly are. You have a cloud following you around uh, the, the last yeah. year or so, Simon. <laughs> Actually, I think I seem to shoot the best when it's drizzly and shit, now that I think about it. It's because you yeah, can I cool think that's stuff. Comparative. I can't tell. Yeah, that was a hit. Yeah. <laughs> I think a, a lot of people, you know, that the weather will get to them and it'll it'll get in their head. Yeah. Um, and they start thinking, oh, I'm cold and I'm wet and oh, what am I doing this for? And it's like, you know, all that thought is not trigger control sight picture. So, it, yep. yeah, people tend to lose focus of it, I suppose. So let's hope yeah, for it's, it's taken me a long. It's taken me a long time to get used to it, truly. I mean, yeah. I, I do still, uh, yeah, I just not prefer not to shoot in the rain, you know what I mean? But then now I've... I don't know. I'm at peace with it, so you just get on with it, sort of thing. But it took a while. You're a farmer. Good. No, good no, gear but goes a long way. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It's, yeah, I just hate yep. shit rusting away and and whatever. and not having your cartridges over book max or even near max, so you fucking your gun actually runs reliably as a ma- like in the early days, and everyone does it. And I did it. You wrote everything. You, everything's got within go, tolerance. It's got to go fast as fuck, and you're like, man, I know better, and, and you don't. And but like slowing it down, and it ejects perfectly, and the primers don't fall out. Like one of mm. our friends who probably listened mm. to this, who had every primer fall out at Tarab Teams match last year. Yep. Yep. Um, and yeah, it, I've been there and done that too in the early years. I yeah. overloaded the 260, and if you look closely at the bolt face on my 260, there is a little scorch ring around the <laughs> around where the firing pin comes out of the bolt face. It's, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Learnt my lesson. And it, it gives, doesn't give you any real practical advantage. In All fact, right. you just anyway. Sorry, Mark. Let's go, let's go back to the mid years then. So, I just want to talk a bit about the evolution of your state. You know how how you've um, evolved the matches in terms of complexity or or targets. Or I think early on you were obviously limited by the number of targets you had. So, you know, how's that changed? You know, when once target number of targets is no longer an issue, so you know. Yeah. Okay. I'll to give you a, a an example of uh, I've got the score sheet open for twenty fifteen, Tarata medium range, and um, we must have had a few targets by then because it, it, there's a few stages with more than one target in the in the really early years, you would have been like two targets was a complex stage. Man, I want to go back in time. <laughs> <laughs> um, by 2015, we had a few t- we had a few targets, so most of the stages are, are two or three targets in what was in open class. But um, you know, just like uh, like one of the stages is three targets, but you get three and a half minutes. Yeah, and all you've got to do is is hit them. You've got an You've got to make five hits. You've got an unlimited round count in three and a half minutes. No other rules. That sounds like Mark's dream. That is just genius. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing for the other one and a half minute or uh, three minutes? <laughs> yeah. I, w- I would have burnt that through. Well, I would have missed a lot in thirty seconds, and then that'd be it. Yeah, well, <laughs> even like the first count. stage, 
this is three targets you know one at 100 meters which couldn't be shot prone and i'm pretty sure you could see it kneeling and then two prone shots was like 320 and and getting out to sort of 500 but again you had three and a half minutes you know to fire five shots basically and Hmm. two of them were a kneeling and a you know unsupported kneeling at 100 meters it's yeah man uh, way back then like we had a big and small target right at the end so st- 10 stage 10 three minutes for five hits at 600 yeah yeah i mean you for that side of things you could wait for the wind for two minutes just sit there and watch the wind go by and then you know if that gust drops off then man just rattle away your five and off you go sounds like a south island match So yeah, whereas was, what, I mean, you guys are, are well familiar with what we do now. And yeah. Jesus, a, th- a three-minute stage is going to be, you know, tripods through multiple loopholes at three different targets. And, you know, it's, it's man, three minutes is a lifetime these days. It's going to be a 15-shot round count. Did, was that still, like now, you'd, you'd struggle for most people not to clear that? Back then, was it being... It's still a challenge. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you got above fifty percent, you were in to win it. Yeah. You know, fifty percent in points. If you got above fifty percent, yet you were in. Yep, you were on fire. But yet, but yet there were a few guns that could, that would be, would be competitive now, though, wouldn't there? Wasn't there? I mean, yeah, but it's absolutely. Just the way people but, shot. Yeah. Uh, we're just we're far better at it now. Yeah. You know, um, we're far more organised. We we you know we practice shooting. You know back then shooting fundamentals. You know we're all canted off the side of the rifle. There's you know there's, there's nobody checking natural point of aim. We're um you know nobody's gone through the ninety degree trigger finger type stuff. There's you know we most of them like way back in the early years the guys that were shooting well were F class shooters because right. they shot in the wind at long distance. Yeah. And um and and you know they they were they knew to make bold you know bold corrections and in, in strong winds and whatnot and they were confident in doing it. Um, most people, I mean, in the early years, I remember Malcolm going across the Woodstock. The Woodstock one thousand, when he comes across a competitor, and it's bang, miss, bang, miss, bang, miss. And he's like, right, man, how much wind have you got on? And the guy's like, no, I can't see any wind. <laughs> and Malcolm, having shot. You know, NRA and full ball for years. He's looking at it, going, "Well, if I was shooting a three, three oh eight, he would have like four minutes of wind on, and this guy had nothing, and he just, no, I can't see any wind." Hmm. We've learned a lot. Competitors have come a long way, and you know, in 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 the years since we were running that, and um, you know, so shoots have got harder. We've put more challenges in. And competitors have got better, uh, faster than our competitor than our competitions have got harder. So, you know, score per- score percentages keep rising as well. Yeah, that's true. Would I guess competitors wouldn't have most wouldn't have been spotting their own misses back then, like you say, without the these, these sort of modern fundamentals we're trying to use and and such. Um, yeah, no, that's true as well. You were heavily reliant on you know the guy who was scoring from you and or scoring for you and most of them you know they weren't carrying spotting scopes they're trying to you know spot through rifle scopes and most of them aren't practiced at it and it, it yeah 
Yeah, yep. I get some. Well, one thing before we move on from the old days, um, I think we've, we've talked about it before and other things, but the when I started, you've seen a lot more. We've seen a lot of teakers, right? A lot of teakers, black factory stocks. Yep. And then, but now you see very little in the way of um, basic. Uh, I do air quotes with that, but basic sort of um, off the shelf um, hunting guns, and you see more and more um, sort of semi tactical style or um, precision style guns. Now, partially due to, I imagine, the, the popularity around the world means there's more and more of these systems available. <clears throat> But is it so? More people are just buying guns specifically for matches. Do you think, rather than just running what they've already got? I think the current pool of competitors who make it along to events, are, you know, are, have enough sort of disposable income to spend it on on nice guns and nice gear, specific for the events. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that's. Uh, uh, a method to you know to grow the sport um you know because there's there's probably you know 220,000 other licensed firearm holders in New Zealand who just shoot their hunting guns yeah and if we um if the if the impression is you need a full-blown you know tricked out race gun to compete in these events then you won't get them no so yeah I think People understand the advantages that those, you know, like the the custom um, rifles and and going with you know chassis type stocks and and um, you know adjustable, you know, reliably adjustable scopes and you know reticles that allow you to measure and and all the rest of it. They see the advantage in that. Um, it's not to say you need it. It's just it does offer an advantage. It seems to me it almost a three year evolution into it for people. So. Now that I've, I've seen, I've got a few other people interested, but it's really taken them probably two seasons, three seasons, to sort of finally, I don't know, get the confidence to get a good setup. If you know what I mean, they sort of might have started out with something in the middle, and in the middle solution, you know, a, a good scope on a what a hunting gun with maybe a bigger mag type of thing, yeah. But then so it's it does seem, and then they've probably veered off and got a 22 because they feel that's a cheaper way of getting uh, better faster which is probably true yeah Uh, because they've started to get a bit jittery about diving right in um, with all the reload yeah just the whole next level of it oh yeah and just the what do you buy what is a good thing to buy you know man in the early years you know, back then we still had problems with the majority of scopes. If they come out with like dialable turrets, you had a a reticle that was in mils and adjustments in minute of angle. <laughs> you know, it just and yeah, you, know, you you put on top of that, you know, all second all second second focal plane, you know, reticles and and whatnot. Yeah. It just yeah. And even the, like back then, we didn't have the vast, massive amounts of information that we have online now about what to buy, what's going to work, and you know, and how you do all that. It just, yeah, yeah. I didn't come a long way. Well, I my first because people I hung out with similarly level of similar level of sort of inexperience. We all bought big magnums, 
you know, and you're chasing, you know, with no muzzle brakes or suppressors and trying to hand load and yeah, just you're, you're pushing, you're slowing your own progress down and because you think you need a big bullet going fast to shoot long range, but um, yeah, well, that was all the rage back then. It was all magnums. It's only been in the last, I don't know, uh, eight nine years that the sub, well, yeah, sub magnums and non magnums, so short action calibers have really come into their own and. And the competition world is growing around them, really. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the yeah. Well, I was moving mean, when I got my first sort of um, six five Creedmoor. Like it was, you sort of start playing with that, and you think, shit, this is pretty good actually. And um, low recoiling and excellent factory ammo was available at the time, back before the world went mad. And um, I look back now and think, fuck, I wish I had have done that the two years previous. But again, it's um, if you don't know, you don't know. And if the people you hang about with or <clears throat> can get information off, they don't know either. Um, yeah. just, you're, you're an echo chamber, sort of, they're an echo chamber, and you just sort of bounce the same ideas off each other. Um, yeah, in which case, everything's learned through experience. Learned through missing. Yep. And bruised shoulders. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Excellent, excellent. Give me a second. Let's move that. So, what influence? Um, uh, where we are now is quite unique, but sort of in that sort of 2015 to say 2018 era, what influence did the competitions in the states have? So, more specifically, the um, the Precision Rifle Series and, and that kind of style. Was there much of an influence that pushing over um, into the New Zealand scene at the time? Not a whole lot. There's, you know, there's there's other events running in New Zealand by by those years. Um, people sort of, you know, doing t- doing their own thing and and you know putting their own spin on the the sort of practical field shooting side of things. Um, in terms of specifically like PRS and whatnot, um, when they started going in the states, um, I had a a close look at their, you know, their their founding documents, so their rule set and and um, oh, their what do they call them? Their skill stages and and stuff like that. Along with like um, there was some hunter matches run out of South Africa, um, and then uh, some of the matches that have been running for a long time over in the states. Um, so the snipers hide matches. Um, what are now competition dynamics matches have been running for a few years by then. Um, yeah, I was taking more influence from what they were doing and, and whatnot. But a lot of it was just you run a match and you see what works and you and what doesn't. And you you know, you know improve on what works and you, um, you remove what doesn't or you fix what doesn't work. Um, and yeah, there's a degree of organic sort of... Um, evolution through our matches as well and i still I have can't say i've always got it right because <laughs> obviously the the most people know you're you're heavily involved in our stuff in the background and we're not just in the background but um so our, our style is sort of just a, a, a form of yours original um we still have a lot of people from the outside think that we're just running a prs match in a field you know with a tank trap and a um and a few things like that and, and there is some similarities on some stages but um the, 
the, the I'm looking at one of your older photos and it's a chap. He's on the side of a hill shooting off a big old manuka bush. He's he's actually in milking overalls with the looks and red band boots, but it's it's very it's very different. Now, again, this is earlier days. It's 2017, judging by the date. Um, yeah, that field style. That's it. Seems hard to explain to some people, and some. Uh, it's not just because it's in a field as such. Like obviously, that's how we deal with it with the police now. But um, do you think in the states, like you see some matches, if I've got. Um, a range where there is natural terrain they seem to use it all the time but then they're sort of restricted to using um, man-made props for the square ranges the sort of more traditional ranges or flat ranges um yeah so i don't know it's 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 funny but it's i i see a lot of that design as venue specific or necessary to the venue um and obviously you like to climb up the side of a hill and shoot out of the off the side of the tree like this and which we also enjoy but um yeah i'm not sure what I'm, question i'm formulating but it's just sort of pointing the difference between the events like you say yours is a more organic thing that's sort of formed here rather than a cut and paste yeah keeping in mind yeah when we started our original sort of goal was improve our shooting for hunting mm-hmm. and you know uh, we were hunting uh, we still hunt vast majority on public land and so there are no you you can't you're not riding your quad bike right there there's no flat track no you know quad bike track that's all nice and flat and grass to shoot off there's you know we were we were shooting a lot in the central north island so you're talking you know tussock that comes up to your waist you know you're talking about you know terrain that you can that you're not going to get a prone shot and it's not going to be flat, and and, and that's the shot you're going to be offered. Um, you're talking towy animals, or if you get a wind shaft, you know they're not going to hang around and wait for you. So everything was was trying to practice to the point where we could quickly get into a shootable position and and you know and and get an animal. And we've we've never really let that go. That. Uh, we get a bit more gamey these days, particularly in the rimfire events. Um, you know, for those people that shot the Tokara, um twenty-two rimfire matches, uh, they're a lot more game orientated, and and they've, they've sort of moved away a bit from the the more sort of practical, what we would call sort of real-world application. Um, but our field matches, absolutely, we try and stick to you know. We are Gillis practical rifle events. We're not precision rifle events. We are practical rifle events. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, at least, there is a very distinct difference between precision and practical. Mm, I agree. Yep. Yep. It's, and you, keep in mind, when we, when even in the earlier years, when I was putting together a course of fire, you want to challenge competitors on a range of their skills. And so you're going to get a speed stage where it might be one target that's swinging round and you'll have a very short time limit to get a bunch of shots away. And so you want to challenge their speed. You want to challenge you know, a precision. So you may want to have you know, like learn your limits type target rack type thing. And you want to um, challenge how well they can build a, a positional shooting position um, when the ground's not flat, when you've got to choose about which part of the sheep rut that you're going to sit in and how you're going to support yourself and your rifle and whatnot it's each of the stages we've always tried to sort of challenge a different aspect 
um, at each of the stages. And, and in the early years, we would look at a piece of ground and you'd sort of picture it in your head and go, right, if there was a deer standing down there, or let's say there was three of them standing down there and you wanted to get all three of them. You know, you fire the first shot and the next one's run up the face up there and then they're gonna they're not going to stand there and look at you for long. You've got to quickly move and, and you know, and work out what you're going to hold for elevation then get a shot away. Um, I grew up, you know, in my in my teens shooting a lot of goats and doing a lot of goat culling and when you're when you're on a mob of goats and there's bloody 15 of them and you're shooting your, um, you know, your bolt action um, 2 3 they can run you know, 200, 300 metres and you've got to know all your dope all the way out and there's no, we didn't have range finders or anything, you just had to know it and goats aren't a massive target. It was all, you know, all of those stages come about from something we were doing with goat shooting or hunting or, or something. We wanted to challenge something. And, um, to a degree, we still do that. It's still the goal. Yeah, well, I guess... If, if you don't shoot these in a sort of semi-regular fashion and you're not sort of better than you were a year ago or, or that kind of thing, it's um it's it's so good for your shooting skills. My for, Again, when I started, I used to just shoot three or threes and did a bit of pistol shooting and that stuff, but the things w- we can do with rifles now, like put a bullet where we want it from, like you say, from a shitty position where you've got a compromise and you can't build that perfect sitting position or you can't... Whatever. Um, I couldn't even comprehend taking some of the shots that now seem pretty simple on and then on even just shooting small targets and um with 22s at distance and in the wind and um and it is all from these competitions and practicing for these competitions and then when we go hunting we go culling or whatever um some of the blocks down wanganui way your your targets are out to reasonable medium distances and, and you can be you're not taking a pot shot you're taking like a shot that you're like 95% 95% sure you are applying the right information and the right fundamentals and you're going to connect them and uh, sort of ethically it's a, an open-ended word but deal to that animal um, whereas before shooting a target at 600 meters and hitting it first time was not really realistic definitely not Certainly realistic. not reliably no and or even knowing that you're dope is that good or understanding that the angle's going to make a huge difference because we didn't really have tbr well, it was definitely new when I started. So, um, you know, the um, ballistically angle compensated um, range finders and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, you know, so uh, we didn't have our flash weather stations. Not that much. We could run hard data a lot of time, but... Um, oh, just the wind. The, the yeah, wind, So yeah. the early guys, you know, they, they were NRA shooters who were used to watching flags and by the you know the angle of the flag and whatnot they knew how much hold off or how much to dial on scopes. But you got them out in the field and you took away their flags and now you've got real world wind going through gullies and and speeding up as it comes down them and and whatnot. And yeah, the the guys who hadn't shot NRA at the time they were just I don't know it's coming from the left. I'll hold out <laughs> to the left and we'll, we'll we'll give it a go. Yeah, and yeah. It's, we even uh, at Ahatiti there, the the thousand meters, twelve hundred, even the mile. You're going over multiple gullies. A lot of them you can't actually see because you're looking at the tablelands and it's sort of pushing up. And even at the mile, there's a big dead zone for about three, four hundred meters generally, where there's not a lot of wind. Um, and so yeah, you just you just got to learn, don't you? And um, 
it's, it's probably one of my weak quite weak areas is reading foliage still and um yeah, some yeah no, my main way of assessing wind as a match is the last shot I fired. Yeah, <laughs> so, so that's why you need good bullets. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah, it's um. The last stage was a six hundred meter shot, and it went. You know, it was point three off the left hand side. Okay, well, this is a six hundred meter shot. I'm just going to hold an extra point three. So, what wind speed? No idea. <laughs> Yeah, I, I sometimes I'll look back at I'll look back at the data depending how busy we are in squads and go, actually if at that distance it was about you know point seven and I'll, but um, like say you say if I'm shooting like six hundred and then eight hundred and a thousand I'll just add on like point two or something or each shot and just sort of run a semi educated guess I think but um yeah I've I've done it a few times we've sort of had a static target where you get to work out the exact wind adjustment. And from that, I've sort of used the ballistic data to work out what the wind speed is. And then as long as I'm feeling a similar wind speed through the day, I'll keep applying that wind speed as I go through. But, um, yeah, I'm not standing there with a kestrel measuring it at every stage. No, heavens no. Because, um, as I say, that only gives you the wind where you were at. Yeah. It doesn't, you know... Um, whereas that bullet's going to give you the wind all the way there and if you're like say the the winter match we do several stages you are in a clump of trees so your kestrel's yeah, not going to give you a fuck all sheltered yeah, yeah and it's going to be like steamy and humid in there usually because it's shitty weather and so it's going to be giving you funky environmentals for, for for certain things and then the wind's not going to be right and, and you're blocked by the hills to your left or the right depending yep. um so yeah, it, it's it's. I guess it's just things you got to learn. Um, yeah, it's all experience. Yep, I. Um, yeah. Now, rifles. So you are one of the few holdouts who still enjoys running a wooden rifle, which I quite like. You do have a few modern um, sort of uh, accessories on it these days. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Couple I'm also th- probably one of the few people that's been shooting their rifle for a decade or more. A decade or more. I don't think Mark has got a rifle and shot it for more than a week before he retires it. Let's wait for me. <laughs> hey, my Mini 30. My Mini 30 lasted a while. Well, it probably wasn't, wasn't a competition gun. Really. Yeah. Th- thanks a lot, Jacinda. It was a spray and, yep. spray and pray. <laughs> but it shows... Well, you know. I got a couple of pigs today with the 2D3, and they were 300 metres downhill and bows, and the sort of shots I wouldn't ever have taken before I started getting into this stuff, so... Yeah. So, Simon's, anyway, Simon's rifle. Back, Simon's back rifle. to his rifle. <clears throat> so there's not, not not a lot of need, so obviously you're, it's a... Um, give me some more details, but it's a Sarko, you've got a, like a nice match-grade barrel on it, so there's not, not, a lit, <clears throat> not a lot of need to replace it, right? It shoots accurate, very accurate. Um... It's not holding me back, put it that way. Exactly, yeah. Um, there are better, there are far better, more applicable rifles, stocks, actions, magazine systems out there now than what I'm using. I, like, I, I wouldn't recommend what I'm using to someone getting into the sport. Mm-hmm. It's, um, But as I say, I've, I've been shooting it for a long time. Um, I'm just trying to work out when exactly I when exactly I started using it. What, what? I had it in um, about 
2010 I bought that. Shit. What caliber was it originally? 308. 308. And you shot it as a 308 for a while? I shot it as a 308 at the Taupo NZDA prize shoot in November 2010 for 23 shots. And then it was rebarreled. God, you've got a memory. Um, I have a computer in front of me. I'm looking at the photos of me shooting it in November <laughs> 2010. Um, so, now, so it shot so, one so match you, as a so you, weren't, you, you weren't enamoured with the 308 back then? I No. Um, so my father and I, we, we went through a whole exercise of of we want a we want a long range rifle that doesn't need to be a long range hunting rifle. It was a long range competition rifle. Yeah. And so we went through a whole, you know, research project and like um if you search if you got on the internet and searched Zach Smith out of what is now competition dynamics, he wrote an article in two thousand and ten or somewhere thereabouts. Um, it was a comparison between the 260 Remington and the 6.5 by 47 Lapua and something else. Can't remember what the third one was. Anyway, coming out of that, what we, what Malcolm and I decided was, um, you know, that the 308 case, we were never going to run out of 308 cases. They're just every other man and his dog's got 308 components you can always go into the shop and buy 308 a box of 308 demo and so yeah. we wanted to base it on something we were never going to run out of of components for so 308 neck down to 6.5 um i think in those really early years we were using the 139 grain lapua Senas projectiles and um and then burgers started coming out so we started using the burger vlds so you would have immediately uh, barreled it with a fast twist then, yeah? No? Or not? Yes. Yeah. No, we yes. immediately barreled it to an 8-inch twist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, barrel to stabilise those heavier 6.5 uh, projectiles yeah. of the day. Yeah, because 260 would have been a 130 grain. Yeah, wouldn't Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 260 is probably the worst bloody um, marketed, you know, factory ammunition ever. Yeah, they were bringing out like 10-inch twist barrels. Yeah. And the you know the the factory ammunition available for it was like you know 110 120 grain hunting ammo. It was just it was so poorly marketed that it's it's no surprising nobody ever really picked it up as a factory chambering. Yeah. Yeah, but hence this you know this article from Zach Smith and and yeah. keeping in mind I really like competition dynamics. So that's quite especially for here. Was was that quite an early adoption of the sort of modern style short action cartridge I, you know, what's popular now well was you know with the creed more uh, and everything yeah it was um keeping that we were following then the f what the f class guys were doing yeah so i think um in those early years i shot a season of f class and i learned a lot and we i spent a lot of time talking with ken henderson who was essentially the f class national champ um, then, and he was shooting a a stupidly fast six point five plus forty seven Lapua in like a thirty inch barrel, and um, man, that had performance. He was using Reloader seventeen, and and um, yeah, man, that had some stupidly good performance. And uh, yeah, so there was 
it was starting to come in on the on the F class side of things, and the the practical rifle side was just sort of, I don't know, uh, following along, learning their lessons. It must have been when you first started working with it, and I imagine you were looking into a dialing scope of some sort by this point. But it must have been quite impressive the performance you were getting out of it. Uh, yeah, when I when I shot, um, we started shooting like. Um, like half minute angle groups at at five at six at seven hundred it was like man this is holy crap this is on fire this Mm. is unreal um it's it's kind of hard to sometimes to impress um my father malcolm (laughs) keep in mind he he, you've seen that parker hale of his his c3 and how well that shoots uh yes the smallest group i've seen a 308 shoot at seven eight hundred meters in my life yep yeah well hawkins when he was when he was in the army he shot like a two and a half inch group at 500 meters with that thing mm. um and, you know just before he left with the with the defense force ammo you know the the australian ammo the 144 grain stuff they were shooting of the day and you think you know so i'm going out there with this i've bought this brand new three thousand dollar bloody rifle i've you know we've had it rebarreled with this flash krieger fast twist barrel i've got these you know these super flash norma and i'm norma cases and i'm reloading and and throwing powder down to the granule type thing and i'm getting an equivalent performance (laughs) military (laughs) throughout it was like yeah but this is this is cool you know i've got (laughs) to yeah it was cool for me anyway it was yeah being able to shoot tight groups at long distances he would have been shooting that um hawkins and button the ground and off that little foregrip and everything though wouldn't he the c3 he shot his c3 at one of the first tirada medium range matches um 2013 and um and i like i was shooting by then 260 sarko all set up and i only beat him by like one hit yeah yeah (laughs) wow Wow. I'd love, I'd love to see that C three run in a sort of a um, in a, in a modern, modern one of these practical matches these days. Maybe an intermediate sort of distance, five hundred meter match or something. That'd be, um, just because I like military firearms, but um, it's certainly doable. Um, some of the small targets because it's it's obviously got a fixed six power scope with a, a reticle that's pretty diabolically bad by today's standards. Um, but it's doable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've certainly shot it out to six, seven hundred and yeah. I've watched Malcolm shoot it, you know, well over nine hundred and, and out to a thousand type thing. We we did a K, didn't we, with a bit of Kentucky ballistics? Because the the reticle, the turret ran out of um marked elevation or something. Yeah, the the turret on them's calibrated to that Australian hundred and forty four grain yeah. um ammo. Um, and I think it, it maxes out at 800, can't remember if it's 800 metres or 800 yards. must be metres. And, um, yeah, Malcolm's got a couple of hand-scratched-in marks on his <laughs> scope now that go out to 900 and 1,000. Um, yeah. Obviously, that's very independent of atmospherics. Yeah. Um, I think we shot a match at Wairu one year that had a target out to 1,000, so we sort of dialed away onto that and then marked the scope for that yeah no, I, very very nice rifle actually I popped one popped up on trade me but it went a bit mad so I um, 
couldn't quite afford it. Um, you used to buy them for like four hundred bucks. Well, you know, like the I'm gonna, Parker Hale. Yeah. What are they? TX twelve hundred. Yeah. And they still pop up. A... They still pop up, and I've I've watched a few, but I haven't had the dosh at the time. But um, it will happen. But anyhow, anyhow, um, so you sort of um. At the time, there wouldn't have been bugger all six fives in, in the, the what was becoming field shooting. It would have still been mostly three oh eights and seven millimeter oh eight. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, there was uh, there wasn't even like people using two four threes. That was that came in a bit later on as well. Yeah, you know, that, that would have been that smaller, faster yeah. uh, projectile. A two four three running like a ninety five would have been an excellent choice. Well, the thing is, you know, back then you you couldn't get six mil projectiles heavier than a hundred grain. Yeah, we can. None of them were the slick long range projectiles we've got now. No, but um, yeah, it's um, it, the first the f- first one of your matches I shot was with a two four three shooting like PPU ninety grainers, um, and I think I was that tie happy. No, that was Tirada. That was Tirada. I shot tie happy. My tie happy was my first ever g- good result, which was a very low key event, but I got. Th- third equal in the hunter or something it was like just a hunter's match with a 223 but the 223 had a bdc that was like bang on i didn't yeah with no experience it just worked so anyway um when was the when did the six five wave hit sort of big yeah uh it started picking up in that, you know, 2013. Oh, actually, no, it would have been after that. Oh, yeah, maybe 2015. I guess it, it took manufacturers a few years to catch up and, like, take it. Particularly in, in the States. Yeah. You know, the, over in the States, they are very, uh, what's a word to say, it? patriotic, I suppose, to the imperial way of doing things. So, mm-hmm. that, you know, they're still 30.06s and... And what I, you know, they didn't like the the European six point five coming in. It was, you know, the, it took them a while to catch on. But um, there was a few of them that saw it real early on. As I say, particularly in F class. So I noticed you know, they're all starting to shoot those six point five two eight fours. You know, so burning out barrels and eight hundred rounds just to get the performance. I did know some of the early. I listened back to some of the early snipers hide podcasts, and they were involved with the original RPR. Yep, and they did. A fast twist two four three, so one and seven or one and eight. I don't recall, and it it yep. was a flop. Yeah, but it was intended for what was they seen the the, the direction. Yep, and the modern bullets were starting to come, and but people just the were going, market wasn't ready. Yeah, now you're like well, that's actually a viable modern precision rifle, like with one oh eight grain, one hundred fifteen grain bullets. But twenty fifteen, the RPR came out twenty fifteen. Yeah. Yeah, I I remember seeing it and going. I was only new. Seems older. I was only it's new not. to the game and thinking, why the frick have they done a two four three? Like that's a hunting cartridge. I like just I'm just you know just I didn't understand twist rates or BCs, but and now we've seen. Did they come out with like a twenty four inch barrel too? Like it wasn't a short barrel. Like it wasn't the standard sort of twenty inch no, two four three it, barrel. It was essentially. Yeah, you could get one and be competitive with it now. I have no doubt. Um, but the world was not ready for the fast twist six mil, not in a commercial sense. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, I, I digress onto um, praising Frank Gully. But um, okay. So we're just over an hour, so we won't go too much longer tonight. 
<clears throat> so where do you think, uh, excluding the dramas with rain certification and stuff, where do you see it, the sport going now in New Zealand? Uh, so the the blunt answer would be dying yep. if we can't get the range certification shit sorted. Yeah. That aside, the depressing police yep. thing, dickheads aside. Uh, I see the... I think in New Zealand for a while now, we will continue with more the practical style of events. Um, there are obviously more events now leaning towards the precision um, and PRS sort of style. So... Um, should probably clarify that when you look at the um the 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 seriously competitive pres events you're talking comparatively small targets for us um comparatively solid barricades to us and comparatively short time limits compared to us um whereas more on the practical side we're not going to give you flat positions um, we may not give you solid barricades, but we're also not going to give you one minute at angle targets to try and hit off those. So, um, yeah, I, I see the, the some of some of the matches will certainly go down the PRS route, yeah. and you know they they will chase that precision as it has been chased around the world with you know with the precision style events we see around the world. Um, but I for GPRE, I say that as a departure from our roots. You know, our roots were practical rifle. Our roots are, you know, um, uh, hunting scenarios and improving our shooting for that hunting. And um, although we we, it's probably a bit of a, a fuzzy line now with you know with some of the complexity we see in stages. Um, yeah, I, I don't see us going down that precision, the true precision rifle. You know, small targets solid barricades, tight time limit stuff um, that I see the trend. And it's it's funny to watch the success of the NRL Hunter series in the States. Mm. Um, you know, with uh, without the, well, not so much of the tiny targets, but, um, you know, field matches and um, blind stages and all that. And it's it's funny to watch that go full circle. You know, when you, you look at the early success of some of the Snipers Hide matches and they're all field ranges and you know, and unknown distances and blind stages and, and whatnot. It's yeah, it's it's been interesting to watch that full circle. Yeah, even some of the other nomad um sort of non affiliated matches with the same thing, um <clears throat> um field conditions or more blinds. It's similar to NRL Hunter but different in other ways, but they still seem very popular rather than the um the bench rest sort of um sorry, barricade bench rest some people call it. Um, yeah, that's not to say. Look, I, I I don't have anything against the PRS side of things. It's just a, it is very much chasing precision. Um, and by the time once your rifle gets above about fifteen pound, and you know when if you're um if you're humping it around the hills, you know chasing tar or whatnot, and your arms getting tired carrying that thing all day, it's no longer really practical. You know, and that 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 said, with the understanding that the modern sniper rifles are also very heavy, mm. um, yeah. But a the PRS is a style of event that is chasing precision, and the rifles are built for those events and for that style of shooting. The barricades are built for that style of shooting. The target sizes are set for that style of shooting. I just i I think the 
PRS, from my own personal point of view, has has taken a step away from practical. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm, we're not sort of willing to take GPRE too much in that direction just yet. Well, we obviously, especially in the last couple of years, we've been bringing back more and more unsupported stuff into matches, especially in the twenty twos. Um, yeah, particularly in the twenty twos. Yeah, and, and there are heavy twenty twos now, though. There's, there's that never used to be a thing. But um, I think one of the factors here is probably that um, as competitions get professional, say in America or whatever, you know, with the PRS type stuff. It becomes a bit like um, a racing car spec. So competitors are building rifles to a certain spec and therefore they're, um, I guess in a way, demanding that the events are a certain way too, to a degree. So it's two things driving. I think it's going, it's sort of, yeah, they're sort of picking up and it's funneling towards, like you're saying, and chasing accuracy heavier guns, all that sort of thing. So, yeah. And it's yeah, but it's like, also an industry driving it. That's, yeah, an industry as well, but, yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, people are, are producing rifles, you know, and producing stocks, and they, they want, yeah. you know, a, a competition series that allows those stocks and heavy rifles and, the you know, the flash bags and, the, the you know, they want an event that where, where those are, are going to be an advantage. I mean, the, yeah. they have to sell stuff to be in business. It's, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, Wait, there's a there's a bunch of reasons to sort of drive are you not, sport. Are you direction. not just in this for the money, Simon? What? <laughs> Sorry, I'm referring to an money. old an old. Oh, there's an old yes. quote there from a few years. Yeah, back. yeah, absolutely. You know, we are we are just in this for the money. I've I've almost paid off my steel. <laughs> I've been in it for more than a decade. I've almost paid off my steel. Yeah, now we're in this for the money. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, that's funny. No, but I think you're right. They're they're, they're very pre- fundamentally different games. There is, as you said, um, fuzzy lines, but uh, the winter shoots are a real good example. Some of those stages in there, like stage six or whatever it is in the trees, so stage yeah. five, like that is just like that is not a PRS stage, no matter how you angle it, you know. Um, and, and and again in the twenty two series, we've got some props um, that are. Like at the round one, we had the jungle gym. Um, yep. We had one, like the, the troop line stage. That That's that sort of where we're blurring that line. But then, um, especially at Tikarangi, you know, we're um, stage one is all unsupported. Uh, now, you, there's unsupported prone and sitting and kneeling and stuff. But, um, and you can use the terrain, but th- that's different. Yeah, and, well, you're, yeah. you're almost, you're forcing the competitor to use that terrain or choose not to and simply go, you know, truly unsupported. Yeah, it's, um, but if you were hunting too, you're gonna be. And you are on the side of a hill. That's that shot you'd take in it. You'd lean against the hill, and um, yeah, if that animal knows you're there, they're not gonna stand there forever and just watch you and wait for you to move to some other position where you can deploy yeah. your bipod and your rear bag yeah. and all the rest of it. Now you're either gonna make your shot happen in the location that you are with whatever you can use within arm's reach, or that animal will walk away. Yeah, I mean there is some. I see more competitors. Um, the ones who practice anyway actually doing some unsupported practice now as well which is cool um, because like uh, some matches we run you like it'll be um, uh, sling supported prone that's something I've never really done apart from with 303s you know an older fashion 
yep. sort of from a bygone era. But it's cool if if if, if you know it's going to pop up in competitions. Um, whether I'm going to do that hunting, okay, there's maybe something, maybe not for me, but it's it's still a cool skill to have. And but I definitely will use it with my um, older military firearms. So um, yeah, I think the the sling supported prone, I think is is a it's it's not so much a it, it's almost leaning to the game side of things because every man and his dog's got a bipod or a day pack or some form of bag that yeah they can use as a rest and prone. Mm. I mean, even when I'm hunting, you know, with you know, with my hunting rifle, and for the vast majority of the time I'm hunting, there's no bipod on my rifle. Um, I've got a day pack. Should I can unsling, you know, unclip my bum bag and use that to support my my forend, um or my forearm underneath the rifle? There's yeah, so the the true sort of sling supported prone is a is almost being technologied out. Yeah. You know, we just it's it's hard to come up with a practical scenario where for the majority of competitors that would be their go to position. Except for surplus steel. Because we go back in time for that shoot. So Yes, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But even no, then, but so I, I mean, I've a, sorry. No, um, no, go ahead, mate. Yeah, because I've, I've started out putting bipods on everything, hunting guns and all that, but in the last couple of years I've actually gone away from having bipods on them again, because only, apart from sighting in, whatever, um, when I'm out in the field, I just use, yeah, as you say, a day pack or whatever, or a tripod, oh yeah, my trigger stick, which is not really a tripod, but, um, to shoot off. Yeah, or a I, bit of terrain. I, I, just don't, or... I don't find I'm ever using a bipod anymore to a degree, because so, terrain, yeah, basically. I'll find some. I'll look around and go. I'll shoot off that because yep. invariably I'll get a more stable position without dicking around with a bipod to a degree. Yeah. I will, I will say I went possum hunting with a good friend of ours recently, and there was a possum at like I don't know sixty meters, and I'm like oh there's one there, and he I look to my left and he's prone with his bipod deployed. <laughs> I said, You're kidding me. He'll he'll know. Um, I won't say his name. It's um. A, well, AC, that'll be close enough. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> but um, to be fair, he has learned a lot since then about that style of shooting. But yeah, I was like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> He's like, well, I want to hit it. No, fair enough. But, um, yeah, man, mate, 60 metres to stand and shoot. Mate, mate well, I did, I did say at the last round of the Possum Rifle series, which is an invite-only series, um, I told Simon I wouldn't do any, everything would be unsupported. And uh, I, apart from one where I shot out of the side-by-side, um, well, but, it was ninety nine percent unsupported because it's great practice for um yeah it's fantastic practice same with goats that, same with everything yeah yep um, and it's great fun anyway yeah, should we unconscious trigger control yeah it's um yeah. and now you are and you're running pretty lightweight rifles for possums too like you can't run it like, yeah I shoot possums with the voodoo around the house and it is a nightmare <sighs> anyway that's uh, like it's accurate if I can hold it up but it's um. <laughs> trying to hold a torch anyway listen it's not not the best but, um, it's got emlock slots Amelia on the side can the torch, can... can't she? oh she's still I... she's still scared of possums she I likes to be you... shooting them but she doesn't like dealing with them yeah. i can give you the adapter for the side for the torch <laughs> not, i'm not putting a torch on uh, our voodoo <laughs> uh. <laughs> our voodoo <laughs> no okay we might wrap this one up here because we're about 75 yep. minutes i might get you yep. on again in the future simon if you're not too uh, annoyed it's been great to have you on Tom. no no it has been yeah, and very much. again simon is a massive help to uh, the events mark and i do 
Um, most people realise that. Mean but you could probably spend an hour just talking about stage design. Oh, that'll be a good one, actually. I'd like to talk a little bit about fundamentals in the future, too. And Mark yeah, should probably is, listen to that. This was an intro, <laughs> intro. gentlemen. So <laughs> we've, had, we've had a guy, Anthony, filling in for a number of months, but <clears throat> we were really waiting for you to turn up. Yeah, well, Anthony invites himself, so we've got to... Got to... <laughs> no, we really appreciate you coming on. We appreciate all the help you give us with our events. Um, our events would not be the success that they are without input from the start from you and, and your dad and your team and everyone so thank you again for all of that and uh, it's always been a goal of gpre to grow the sport you know and uh, the easiest way to grow it is to be hands-on help mm. yep yeah and we can tell people oh you should just run your own match but you know what it's a lot easier to go and help them yes and if there's yeah it's it's it has made our stuff very successful with um having you not not just to obviously target stage design targets everything but just to bounce ideas off or say listen that's fucking stupid you know have you thought of this so um and fair, host, hosting shoots I, yeah i like reiterating what simon's saying i the best thing i get out of it is seeing new people turn up and come back you know yes. sort of thing yeah, yeah which has been good i oh, just like um it's very off topic and i know we're, we're wrapping up type thing yeah. but um coaching a newer shooter through the day is I find is amazingly rewarding to watch them get success and then watch them turn around and go like, Man, I hit that. It's like, mm. how did I hit that? And I was like, No, you you know, you you did that. You you know, a little bit of coaching will take you a long way and it's yeah, it's um and it's it's really no different with the matches side of things to watch you guys get the success you've had with, with T L R S and whatnot is yeah, it's pretty cool. And um yeah, no, happy to you know, to be a to be a part of, of that and be part of that TLRS volunteer team. So here's a question. Are we going to run Marksman's class at Super Steel? Everyone wants to know. <laughs> yeah, look, you know my opinion on this. I know I know your opinion. That's why the class <laughs> yeah. was invented. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So my opinion is, yes, you got to fucking run it. Well, there is, some t- there is some cool ass t-shirts being designed, which we'll tease in the future. Um, yeah, admittedly, I have a backup plan if uh, Marksman doesn't eventuate. But um, yeah, no, if if my influence will mean anything, there'll be a Marksman's club. So Simon's putting his foot down by the sounds of that. So <laughs> oh, look, good. It, good. It's still got to be viable. If you only get two entries, it's not viable. Yeah, I think we'll set it at like seven or something. That's my sapper class did then. Well, your match director, Mark. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, now, just we're going to wrap it up. We are working, hopefully, on some really cool stuff for Surplus Steel. If some things pan out, it's going to be like next level, like possibly the best thing that's ever happened to this country. So keep the your entry fees may reflect that. Yes, if we've got to get heavy I'll haulage throw that involved, out there. <laughs> if we've got to get heavy <laughs> transporters involved, um, you're going to pay yep. for it. But it's going to be cool. Uh, we'll probably have t-shirts available. Maybe um, we'll see how that goes as well. So. Yes, yeah. invoke the War Production Act. It's fine. Or slave labour, one of the two. Yeah, child labour. I've got a couple of kids now. Awesome. Yeah, now there's some cool stuff coming together with for surplus steel. And, um... and Mark's given us permission to make the biggest, most intricate trench ever. Well, when this... you say permission, isn't it Mark digging it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be as much as Mark wants to dig. Um, but you might have to have a water break halfway along it. That's how big this thing's going to be. Anyway, we'll wrap it up there with all that um, cryptic information about surplus steel. Um, trench gun, anyway. Trench gun, yes. Close range targets, grenades, we'll have it all. 
Thank you all for listening to episode 47. Thank you for coming on, Simon, and we will talk to you all again soon. Bye. Okay, catch you later.